welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host and thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy for well over 20 years. During that time, I've been so fortunate to witness countless breakthroughs while working with people, whether one-on-one, as a speaker, in professional trainings, or in workshops. The insights that I've garnered have inspired me to write over a hundred articles and several books, including the companion title to this podcast, The Possibility Principle, which you can find wherever books are sold. On this and every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you truly thrive in your life, to reach the possibilities that you may long for. Think of this as a new game plan for living. Thanks for enjoying my emerging community of possibility seekers, and I hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everyone, or morning, based upon where you're coming to this podcast from. It's my absolute pleasure this morning to introduce Dr. Ken Pelletier. And I'll tell you folks that his list of credits and bio is so long and so noteworthy that I could take up our entire show by sharing, but I'll share just a bit. Ken is a clinical professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, and Department of Family and Community Medicine in San Francisco. He's also a professor of medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine in Tucson. He's on the boards of so many Fortune 500 companies, there's no need for me to really iterate them. Dr. Pelletier is listed in Who's Who in America and Who's Who in the World, and he has been a frequent interview on every major news network that you can think of. In particular, Ken's books, which are of interest to me and the topic of our conversation today, is a book that he wrote called Mind is Healer and Mind is Slayer, and a more recent book called Sound of Mind, Sound of Body. As my followers and listeners know, I am very excited by the interrelationship between mind and body. Ken, I thought I would kick off today by sharing with you that many years ago, I gave a talk called Beyond the Mind-Body Connection. And when the audience got seated and perhaps knew of my reputation, I said somewhat provocatively, folks, there is no mind-body connection. They were kind of shocked. I could see the look on their faces and I said, there's no mind-body connection because there's no mind-body separation. Why would we ever think they were separate? And so that's the kickoff for today's discussion. You have such a wealth of experience and knowledge, foresight in these areas. Could you share some initial thoughts on this mind-body relationship, Ben? Well, I totally agree with your observation. Whenever I've written about mind-body, I've always had it as one word to try to represent the fact that it's part of a a continuum and they are in fact inseparable. One of the things I've said in my books in looking at mind-body is it's not a matter of mind over matter, it's that mind matters. And I think that's an important message. And it's one that I learned when when I was writing Mind is Healer, Mind is Slayer. It came out of a dissertation research project that I was doing as part of my MD-PhD program. And it was to study a group of adept meditators. 
And the ostensible reason for the study was pain control. But what I was really looking at was the fact that I'd heard stories, as you have, about uh, meditators that could control bleeding, pain, heart rate, brain waves. And in the mid-1970s, that was heretical. There was a fierce debate over whether people could regulate the autonomic nervous system or not. And so there, there were a number of studies that had gone on, but none of them had very controlled laboratory conditions. So I decided I would take a group of meditators and study them under very rigorous conditions at the UCSF School of Medicine and demonstrated unequivocally that when they were meditating, they controlled bleeding, they controlled pain, they controlled infection. They controlled the electrical activity of their brain, their muscles, their blood pressure, their heart rate. And that to me was the beginning. And it's still a mystery that, like you, I'm still exploring. That's a fascinating anecdotal explanation. I look to the source of why we see things the way we do. And of course, famously, we attribute much of this compartmentalizing to Descartes. When he said, I think, therefore I am, and he severed mind and body. Amazing to think that going back to the 17th century, pre-internet, that one person's statement of one sentence could actually kick off an entire worldview, that the way we see reality operating is aligned with that. So in the medical field, and you are a physician, and I'm going to ask you shortly how, how you handle this dissonance between your belief and the operating worldview, nevertheless, of medicine. But I look at the word psychosomatic. Um, psychosomatic is generally used as a pejorative term. That's right. psychosomatic. It's in their mind, suggesting that what's in the mind isn't really in the body. And that the traditional medical establishment still speaks to that Cartesian split between mind and body. How do you navigate that as a physician? Well, just to to comment on your observation about Descartes, the reason his statement had such power is there was a fierce warfare, if you will, between the church and the state in his time. And the church was claiming domain over the mind and the soul. And the scientists or the lay public was claiming domain over the terrestrial, the earth, the body. And his statement actually served to separate that, basically to make them finally come to peace. So the church, if you will, took control of the mind and the soul, and Descartes and his followers took care of the earth in the body. So he, in effect, memorialized a longstanding dispute that had existed between the church and the state. So it's the reason why he had so much power. For me, it's actually, you know, the, the research that we published in 1977 was groundbreaking because it was demonstrated absolutely unequivocally that mind-body was a continuum and that mind had sway or the body, and that in some instances, the body could have sway over the mind. And if we fast forward to the present time, all of medicine has become more a bioenergetic model. It's no longer organs and circulatory systems and neurological pathways. It really, if you look at MRIs, if you look at PET scans, all of the imaging technologies, they show us that the body is a subtle energy field. 
It's in constant fluctuation that if a person thinks sad thoughts, the brain lights up in a certain way. If they think happy thoughts, their brain lights up in a totally different way. If they have an aha experience, the hemispheres of the brain become synchronous, whereas normally they're asynchronous. Uh, meditators can profoundly change the electrical activity in their brain, which in turn affects their heart. So that's one line where we've, we've come to see mind, body, in fact, are not only not inseparable, they are part of a, an electrical, a biochemical, you will, uh, continuum. The other is probably more recently, as my last book was on epigenetics. And what we now know, and this is really, to me, fascinating, is that we always think of genetics as the final bastion of physical determinism. Everything we are is written in our genes. Turns out to be absolutely false. Less than 5% of what we experience as adults is due to genetic determinism. 95% of who we become, how long we will live, what diseases we will have, our intellectual capacities, et cetera, are determined by an interaction between our genes and our environment, our beliefs, our diet, our stress, et cetera. And that, if you will, is epigenetics, the interaction between all of those variables and, and our genes. So again, we have this model of subtle energy. Beliefs affect our genes. Genes affect our beliefs. And lastly, I guess I would add that the newest realm is in the realm of the, the microbiome or the intestinal tract, everything between your mouth and the anus, that we are realizing that 80% or more of what we call human immunology originates in the microbiome. And the human body has about 23,000 genes. The microbiome has 100 trillion, 100 trillion cells. So we're more like a carrier of this incredible organism called the microbiome. And there's a bi-directional clear pathway between emotions and the intestinal tract bi-directionally. They're profoundly interconnected. So everything that we have in the more modern understanding of mind-body is, in fact, it is a continuum. Fascinating. So the mind, our minds, the way we've been trained to think, tend to gravitate toward linear thinking, cause and effect, reductionism. I can't share how many times individuals have said to me, I'm wired that way. And I'll explain, well, you have no wires and you have no screws for loose screws. But still, the orientation for most is that we are at the mercy of our brain chemistry. Rather than understanding that it's our thoughts, feelings, perceptions and attitudes that inform what we see in the brain rather than being the victim of it. The way I allude to it is. If you were walking at the beach and looked behind yourself and saw your footprint in the sand, you wouldn't think the sand produced the footprint. <laughs> you left your mark in the sand. Our thoughts, feelings, attitudes, experiences leave their mark in the brain. Would you agree with that point of view? Absolutely. I like your analogy. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'll certainly borrow that. <laughs> <laughs> Please feel free to. So all that said, which I find it liberating, yet the opportunity, the progress in shifting the general point of view of the public seems so tiringly slow. 
do you have any thoughts as to how we can illuminate this and free people to understand that they are not at the mercy of these things, that we are the originators in large part of how we experience life? How do we expedite that new way of looking at this, Ken? It's a very good question for which I wish I had an answer, but your recounting of the experience with your patients makes me think of the classic story of William James, who's the founder of psychology, that he was in a profound depression, debilitating. And he roused himself from his debilitating depression with a simple observation that he could choose between one thought and the next, that he could go, it's like your collapse of the wave theory in your book, yes. um, that he could go from thinking one negative thought to another negative thought, or he could go from a negative thought to a positive thought. That simple observation that he led to a happy thought was what his stepping stone to rousing himself from depression. So I don't know if there is any magic except to continually articulate for people. You have the authority over your reality. Right now, if we heard a loud explosion, if you were PTSD, you might have a horrible experience because of an experience in battle. For someone else, it might have been a wonderful memory of the 4th of July as a child and how special that was. So again, an external stimulus, but a totally different internal reality. And the only thing I ever try to convey to people that I see as patients or friends is that when you realize that you are the ultimate arbiter of how you experience reality, what you choose to have link one thought to the next, when you choose between one emotion, happiness and joy versus depression and despair, that realization never goes away. It's like a figure ground relationship. Once you see the shift, you can never see the picture in the same way. So it is subtle, but it's very, very, very profound. And so useful for taking people out of a state of victimization, a depression. We're looking at the concept of PTSD, understanding that how we view ourselves, our history, our experiences, is all subject to revision in the moment that we're in. In the nanosecond before your next thought, we look like reality, waiting to happen, full of possibility. Right? So as you know, my work is in large part devoted toward teaching people to actually experience and see their thought and to be able to articulate and say, I just had a thought come up. Let me tell you what that thought is telling me. See, that's not punctuated. It's slow. It's just a thought. And of course, the relationship between thought and feeling, my thought evokes a feeling, my feeling evokes more thought. And it's liberating and freeing for us to be able to, to move in that direction. I wanted to touch upon the notion of placebo effect with you. So medical establishment clearly accepts the fact that there is a placebo effect. Really, the takeaway there is that if the mind thinks that there is a medicine in that capsule that can help me, there is an effect based upon that. So the question then comes to mind, why do we marginalize the placebo effect instead of grabbing a hold of the brilliance of it and speaking to how we can move in this direction to heal ourselves? And my thoughts, perhaps naive, 
or perhaps cynical, is that, well, the, the pharmaceutical industry would lose a fortune of revenue if we operated that way. Is there something else to it beyond that, Ken? Well, placebo is very powerful, as you know. One of my mentors, Norman Cousins, always used to say there's placebo and there's nocebo. And the nocebo are the negative expectations that physicians give to patients. They say, you have three months to live. You have terminal cancer. You have end-stage heart disease. Those have a profound impact on the belief of their patients because they're susceptible. They're hearing an authority tell them something. It's like a hypnotic induction. You will believe this. So the, the positive side is the placebo effect. And actually, there is some very good research going on now that has to do with placebo optimization. So placebos are always thought to be a negative in research. So it's something that's attributed outside of the pharmacology or the surgical intervention, whatever it happens to be. There's a Dr. Ted Kapchuk at the Harvard Medical School who's written extensively on the placebo effect. And what he has found, he looks at functional MRIs when people are basically undergoing a, an experiment to activate their placebos or beliefs in a positive outcome, whether or not it's justified. And he finds that the brain chemistry and electromagnetic activity changes when a person believes that something positive is about to happen. And he's found a few peculiar things that I think are kind of almost funny that if you use a blue pill, it's more powerful as a placebo <laughs> if, if it's more expensive. If I give yes. you a more expensive pill, then a placebo effect is more, more profound. So it shows you how subtle the placebo is. So there was a whole line of research now. It's just beginning, but based on Ted's work, that indicates what we need to do is understand how to optimize a positive belief system, believing you can do something. We see evidence of belief on a subtle level. So for instance, it's well documented that people who are motivated to live for an event beyond their life expectancy or beyond their terminal condition, the birth of a child, the graduation of a grandchild, whatever it happens to be, can in fact actually change the time that they're expected to die. So the placebo, the expectation of something positive in the future can hold sway over, over life and death. So this is a very, very powerful tool. And it sounds like you're finding ways to optimize that with your patients. And I think that's, that's a great step. So as we were talking about placebo, the concept of love came to mind for me. What yeah. greater placebo? Again, the problem is with the word, because the word triggers a certain notion in what is a placebo? Think of it as a pill. But love is a pill of euphoria. All of our experiences are different through this concept of love. Nevertheless, I find myself at times frustrated because I'm in the trenches working with individuals around their states of mind, the states of affairs and relationships, and having to counter the deep indoctrination of their belief system, which is that they are powerless and at the mercy of their physical, medical conditions. What a different world it would be if we were teaching this in elementary school and middle school so that we wouldn't have to counter the ingrained belief system that resists this. 
Um, when people ask me, how, how would all these changes come about? I recall when my sons were in middle school, or I think it was high school, I was invited to give a talk on relationships. They were mortified and embarrassed and <laughs> nowhere near the auditorium. But my, my message was simple. If we taught emotional intelligence and relationship and communication skills in school, alongside history, English, and math, Imagine what a different world we'd be living in. So instead of trying to catch someone in midlife or later and open their mind to a different way of thinking, the power of actually being able to teach this, this different philosophy of life, this different worldview, I, I, I think our civilization hungers for a new, coherent, humanistic, connected worldview. Yes. And to a large extent, what we suffer from is this disconnected, fragmented worldview, which teaches us that we are isolated and separated and having nothing to do but fight, compete, pursue greed. And it, the disharmony is, is, is enormous. So just sharing my thought there that if we could break through and teach this to children and students in the generation, we might have a different world experience. Uh, I would strongly agree with that. It's really critical that it, it be in our schools, in our teaching system, like emotional intelligence, being able to identify states of emotion rather than the reading, writing, and arithmetic, or including reading, writing, and arithmetic. I mean, the, the basis of Tibetan Buddhism, the Abhidharma, is a Tibetan table of consciousness that if you assume a particular posture, you use a particular meditation or incantation, you will evoke a particular emotion. And the purpose is to evoke that emotion, to know that you can do that, and that you are different than that emotion. And you go through the periodic table, I believe there are 100 some odd emotional states in the Abhidharma. And so there are cultures like the Tibetan culture, to some degree in India, where there's more teaching of that there is an inner world, and the inner world is as important as achievement in the outer world. And to me, that would be it's an incredible lesson for children. And if anything has taught us about the inseparability of the world, it's COVID. Yes. COVID is everywhere on the planet, respects no gender, no ethnicity, no boundaries. It is a planetary plague, and it demonstrates the inseparability. It starts with one infected individual and has now infected the entire planet. If that isn't a clear statement that we are in fact all one, we are in fact in continual interaction, I can't think of a better example. And that would be, if there's a positive outcome to this, is the realization that we are one, one humanity, one world, one planet, and, and that we need to work together. We need to address each other with love, the planet with love, that will go a long way to solving a lot of our problems. And certainly furthering that, we are all as one needs to include the planet itself. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's that disconnect from the planet, which has us rape it of its resources, denuding it. Um, this, <laughs> as, as you know, this sense of oneness that we speak of, which heretofore has been limited to spiritual realms, I rather try to come at it from science, notwithstanding that I'm not a scientist in any way, but not wanting to be seen as a new age thinker. I come at inseparability from sharing some of the science, which until now has been dismissed as, well, that's in the quantum realm. 
It doesn't appear in our realm. But now over the last few decades, we see that that isn't so. And after all, inseparability is the experience of love, isn't it? What is love other than inseparability? We are as one, right? Totally agree with that. So what are you working on next? What should everybody look forward to, Ken? <laughs> well, uh, the latest research we're working on is what we call a tripartite epigenetic assay, which is kind of a mouthful. But it, it's basically that we make decisions, but we don't know who it is that's doing the deciding. And specifically, we make decisions about diet, about exercise, about stress, environmental exposure, having no idea of who we are or how we're being affected. So this tripart assay is looking at genetic markers, blood markers. So we can see, so the, if you think about it, the genetics are like a blueprint for a house. The blood is what that house begins to look like as it's built. It's the structure. And then the microbiome, which is a whole intestinal tract. So it's the aftermath. So you have the blueprint, the structure, and what it's like to live in it. And we're working on this tripartite assay. And we have gotten to the point of where we can do things like recommend to a person that they eat uh, walnuts instead of almonds, because genetically, they're not programmed to digest almonds very well. but Walnuts are perfect for their digestion and for their optimal health. And the point of the research is that I can see a time, it may be three to five years from now, and, and when the questions are, what kind of stress management is best for me? What kind of diet is best for me? We will be able to answer that really objectively. We'll give back to the person the information saying, when you eat a certain way, here's what it does. You can decide to keep eating that way or you can eat in a healthy way, but here's what it does. So it's really like an internal blueprint of who we are, who's making the decisions, what are the effects of our decisions. Uh, you'll be able to see literally in your mind how it lights up or not, depending on certain decisions that we make, courses of action, thoughts that we have, all the things we've been discussing this morning will will be part of that uh, that profile so that's the latest that is exciting to look forward to and that will be delivered we should expect that work to come through when oh well i just finished a book called the change your genes change your mind which is kind of a theoretical background and actually very practical steps that we can do with diet with stress with environment with physical activity to in fact take charge to have the genetic code be part of what we program and play with and deliver for the fulfillment of our life. Uh, the actual tripartite assay probably is going to take another three to five years for full development before it's practical. There are a few companies, actually, maybe seven or eight companies that have bits and pieces of it out there already. It tends to be expensive. It's not terribly accurate, but they're getting there. And you can see how there'll be a convergence between the basic research we're doing and these entrepreneurial companies in the whole bioengineering area that it'll come to pass in a relatively short time. That is fascinating and exciting as well. Thank you so much for joining with me today. And Ken, just last question. If anyone would like to follow your work, is there a website that they might go to? There's a simple website, drpelletier.com. Everybody, I'll, in my footnotes, I'll give you the spelling and the links to Ken's web address. It's been a delight and a pleasure to have you here today. This has been great. I appreciate and thank you for having the chance to get to know you. 
Same here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me, Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this topic and related subjects, please be sure to check out The Possibility Principle, my book at thepossibilityprinciple.com. I always welcome and look forward to your feedback. Please leave a comment at the show notes for this episode at melschwartz.com slash podcast, or simply send me an email at mel at melschwartz.com. You can also use that email address if you'd like to be a caller on a future show and have a topic you'd like me to discuss. If you never want to miss an episode, find The Possibility Principle in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and be sure to hit that subscribe button. You'll get new episodes as soon as they are released. And if you know anyone who might benefit from The Possibility Podcast, please tell them about the show. Thank you for listening, and until next time, have a great day, and keep summoning up those new possibilities. Possibilities.